Okay. So, last time we did in the morning, in the evening, conflict resolution one and two. And I want to remind you of the basic grammar, the parts of conflict resolution. Uh, the four G's are an overarching overview of conflict resolution. The first G is the goal. We want to glorify God in conflict resolution. The second part is the process of preparing the way. So you set your mind straight. You go, I'm doing this to glorify God, not for some lesser goal. That helps you to then think about the tools properly. Getting a log out of your own eye is necessary. Jesus teaches us that we should get planks out of our own eyes before trying to get specks out of other people's eyes. So if we have an offense of the same type that is greater, we're going to be terrible at solving the lesser problem of the same type for the other person. But also, when we have some sort of error on our part, it is always the case that other people's failures against you are going to appear bigger to you before they are repented of than after they are repented of. And the other person's errors are going to be distracting to you in terms of your ability to hear rebukes that you receive. So getting the log out of your own eye helps you to perform better and helps the other person to perform better. And so it is important when you are sure that you have done something wrong to repent of it. Thirdly, after we prepare the way, we should seek to take the speck or perhaps beam or whatever out of our neighbor's eye, out of our brother's eye, by gently rebuking. Gently rebuking doesn't mean that it's always milk toast and mild. Gently rebuking means it's a controlled strength. It's a controlled strength. So when it is strong, it's intentionally strong, and it's controlled. And if it is gentle in the sense of weak or restrained, that's intentional too. It is possible to be too mild when rebuking. It is possible to be too rough when rebuking. And we have to consider what is appropriate on the basis of the evidence available to us and the necessity of the hour. But we draw our brother out, and when there are mild things to be rebuked, what we want to do is to be mild and to encourage them by kindness to come to repentance. And when there is danger and a person is behaving in a harmful way, a wolfish way, you want to push them to repent through a violence of action. I don't mean necessarily physical violence, but rough rebuking, things like that. So going and being reconciled is what you seek to do at the end of it. You seek to work through proper apologies using the seven A's, and you seek to extend forgiveness using the four promises of forgiveness. And we need to remember that the reconciliation is only achieved when we either interpret something charitably choose to overlook a thing that is minor, hear a just defense and accept it, hear external repentance and accept it. That is the only time there's reconciliation. A matter can be escalated or a person can be removed without reconciliation, ultimately through the courts of the church. So, let me go to page two. I want to remind you of the value of unity, the attitude that we need to have for that 
the method to use. So first of all, let us remember when we go into conflict resolution, John seven fifty one. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Does our law, and the answer there is no. <laughs> the law of God does not. We, we are not at liberty to judge a man before we hear him and know what he is doing. Proverbs eighteen seventeen, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Now, this 1817 is a part of the reason why much discussion is valuable to be able to work through conflict. Much discussion is principally to occur in person. There's a place for writing. There's a place for voice to text. There's a place for voice memos that are sent by iMessage or Signal, if you're trying to make sure that the FBI is not hearing you. They own it. Let's just be real. I don't know that. I'm kidding. All right. So there's a place for those things, but talking in person, talking in person is where you resolve misunderstandings the fastest. Writing is particularly useful. Writing is particularly useful for making clear distinctions, disagreements, and the reasons why. Okay, you, you can explore far faster in conversation, and you can communicate more precisely and clearly on matters that are settled in writing. Now, at the same time, it's very valuable and powerful to argue in person. So it's useful to have the writing, but it should be followed up with in-person discussions when possible. And that's in part because when you have shorter bits of communication with back and forth, you are able to clarify disagreements faster and you can ask cross-examination questions that show that the emperor has no clothes way faster. So if you're talking to somebody and they wax eloquent for an hour, it can sound pretty persuasive. But if you talk to them and ask them some simple questions, you can make that go away very fast. So, for example, somebody can talk about how truth is relative and not universal, and they can sound very persuasive. They can go on about it for a long time, talk about it a lot. But if you simply ask them the question, is the truth, that truth is relative, universally true? Right? You, you have, in fast order, showed the absurdity of the claim. So that ability to talk to people and to ask them questions. The cross-examination process that occurs in the civil courts in British common law countries, in the United States, that process is rooted in the biblical idea that cross-examination helps to show the absurdity of people very quickly. And it is necessary to make it so a man can defend himself. Cross-examination is key. If for example, our church court were to seek to exercise discipline against somebody without giving them the opportunity to defend themselves, that would obviously be tyrannical. But if cross-examination of witnesses that go against a person is not allowed, that is, the, that is an indicator that it's a show trial. Okay? Cross-examination is extremely important 
to make a trial not a show trial. So Proverbs eighteen seventeen, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. All right, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. Why should we care about unity? Well, the unity of the, of the church is a unity in truth, a unity of purpose, and a unity of method. Okay? So we have the same doctrine, we have the same goal, and we agree about methods of how to behave. One faith, one practice. Now, in order to do that, we have to be willing to serve others. When we want unity, but we are unwilling to serve others, that is called arrogance, pride, and tyranny. Because here's what that unity looks like. I would love unity. Do it my way. I would love unity. Do it my way. Now, if you are humble, when you seek unity, it looks like the process of argumentation, going to somebody, talking to them at length and with labors. So Matthew 18, which is the chapter on conflict resolution, starts with the problem of pride. Because this is what generates a lack of peaceableness and destroys unity and destroys shared goal and destroys shared method faster than anything else. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, what is he talking about? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is principally, when that term is used, we're talking about the visible church. We're talking about the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ that visibly exists upon the earth. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And that's the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And that is manifest in the reign of the visible church, which is the manifestation of the reign of Christ. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, first of all, little children are talked about as part of the visible church. Conversion is talked about as necessary in order to behave properly. And the behavior that is commended is the behavior of little children. So what is this behavior of little children that is being commended? It is the behavior of caring about offenses and being tender. It is caring about offenses and being tender. This is the point of likeness. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we are told to not be children in some ways, 
but instead to be fathers or mature. So it is not a general call to naivete. It is not a general call to not having discernment, but just liking everybody. It is not a general call to make friends real fast in the playground. It is a call to be tender to rebuke and to be affected by, to care about conflict. Unless you are converted and become as little children, we could call that humility in terms of conflict, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So the idea of entering the kingdom of heaven, we've seen in John, for example, the usage of the visible church as a sign for the invisible church. There seems to be here this similar way that this is done where the kingdom is talked about in terms of the realities it represents. Verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the child simply obeyed Jesus when he called. Jesus called him. And then awaited direction. He just came when Jesus called him and stood there in their midst. So that idea of appearing. Now we're going to deal with, as it goes down, we're going to deal with conflict resolution and the fact that there are courts of the church. And the courts of the church can call persons to appear. So do you see how Jesus calling a person to stand in the midst of his disciples is a great analogy for hearing the call of the church to assemble and hearing the call of the church to appear for conflict resolution? Therefore, whoever humbles himself as his little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Okay, so here's a child that is a part of the visible church. And the receiving of children who are the humblest in the church, right? We, we, have, we have the least concern in terms of what they can do to us. And so the idea of receiving a little child who is the least in the church is like receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. So what you do to the least of the church, you are doing to Christ. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Notice the in my name. You are doing it explicitly as a Christian, not a general sense of love, not a general humanitarianism. It is Christian. It is in the name of Christ. And so this idea of giving a reception, giving hospitality, but this isn't really talking about hospitality in the sense of like private reception. This is about receiving people into the church. If you receive a brother into the church, you're receiving Christ into the church. So do you see how horrific it would be to improperly exclude people from the church? So the improper excluding of people from the church is the improper excluding of Jesus from the church. So the idea that we are to think about here is we must seek unity and we must receive each other rightly and we must exclude people rightly or else we bring dishonor to Christ. So it is the glory of Christ that is our principal concern in conflict resolution. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, 
It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. When you refuse to go through biblical conflict resolution with somebody else, with somebody else who is a believer or a professed believer or a child who is in the covenant community, when you refuse to do that, you are causing stumbling. And it would be better for you, it would be better for you, a better outcome, a better outcome for you would be if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Okay, that's the degree to which going through conflict resolution with people properly matters. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Notice we're still in the analogy of conflict resolution. Okay, so the body... What's the body of Christ? The church. So what are the parts of the body? Individual members. Individual members are useful, right? They have gifts and talents and resources. They throw great parties. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. This is a reference to excommunication. This is a reference to excommunication. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. So there is curse on the individual for disobedience, and that's applicable here. Okay? Unrepentant people or people who suffer everlasting hellfire. Churches that do not exercise discipline become synagogues of Satan, are apostate bodies and bring curse on the persons in them. That's why one of the marks of the church is discipline, right? Government. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And that's Gehenna fire. So this is true of the individual and this is true of institutions, especially the church. Verse 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So why should we care about little ones? Because of the fact that God cares about them so much that he gives an angel to guard every single one of the people in the visible church. And what is that ultimately a pointer to? The glory of God. Because their angels see the glory of God. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. 
And now also there's the purpose of Christ. Christ has come to save the elect. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We're talking about the elect there. The elect do not perish. Right? And so again, we have the idea of the child used to represent believers and the idea of the visible church is connected to the invisible church. And so the elect are the ones that will not fall away. He will save them all. So 99 sheep that don't fall away are less valuable to God than one sheep that is restored. And that again points to, and I've said this to you last time I went through this text, but I want you to remember it. Justice is valuable to God, and it displays the glory of God when he is just and rewards those who have not fallen away like the righteous angels. But mercy is more magnificent in terms of showing the glory of God. It is, requires more. Justice required him to make angels for them to fall and be punished or be righteous and be rewarded. Mercy required him to send his son to pay for the sins of those whom he saved. So mercy is far more glorious and extravagant. This is why, brothers, hear me. This is why it is your glory to overlook an offense. And at the same time, humble service looks like rebuking things that cannot be overlooked in a way that will glorify God and seek to restore. Matthew 18, verse 15, gives us the process, the steps. This is, this is, that was all the precursor. Here's now what you do. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if you've gained your brother, you've gained your brother like you've gained the lost sheep. And this is seeking out the lost sheep. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take, what you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, assuredly, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So here's the authority of Christ. So he talked about first this idea of the child coming and being in the midst or being among. And then he talks about the fact that his judgment is with them when they make a judgment. So this is the importance of the church. Now the next part of Matthew 18 that I don't have here because I don't have time to go through it is about the parable of the servant that's forgiven and then doesn't forgive. Okay, so Jesus' order here of teaching is amazing. We should expect no less. But this idea of then appealing to us to forgive once there is 
a reconciliation, to actually have forgiveness be a part of that. So Matthew 5, we have the idea of the importance of the law. And then, I don't have time to go through this right now either, but Matthew 5, 21 then goes through the idea of the duty to go to a brother when you realize you've offended and even to interrupt your worship or the giving of a sacrifice, or, which is a sacrament. And so the idea of the Lord's Supper there, but it can also be used broadly to deal with worship. So here are callbacks to you. When do you need to do conflict resolution? When you can't overlook a thing and if you realize you've offended a brother in an external way, worship or sleep and especially the Lord's Supper, are reminders to you that you should go to your brother and seek to have the offense that you have caused removed. Woe to him who stumbles his brother. It would be better for him if he were tied to a millstone and thrown into the sea. All right, so what we're focusing on the remainder of the time today is step one. Okay, so step one, you've got an offense. We talked last time about offenses that could not be overlooked. So now here, here you're, you've decided you've got to deal with it. You either can't overlook it because of your own weakness, or you can't overlook it because it's the thing that needs to be dealt with, or it's so grievous, or so public, or such a bad example. You think it's settled as a malice, or it's a cankered corruption. So step one. The ordinary form is a private meeting that is one-on-one. It is the individual involved in a dispute with another individual. Now, it can become more complex. For example, it could be a conflict between two households. It could be a conflict between, you know, a couple of people and another person. So, step one is a meeting that involves the parties, the people who are in conflict with each other. And that would, at the most simple level, be a one-on-one meeting, but it would possibly include multiple people if there are multiple people in conflict with each other. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That is the ordinary form. If it's a private offense, between you and one other person, and it's not criminal, and doesn't have all the other exceptions, and believe me, there are lots of exceptions, and I have the exceptions, and we will talk about the exceptions, but let's get the simple thing in place. Let's get the simple thing in place. The simple thing is, there's a private offense, you go to talk to the person immediately, in private. Private offense, you immediately go to the person, in private. One-on-one meeting. That is the ordinary situation for defense. This should be how most offenses are because this is where most offenses will occur is in between two persons and only those two persons know about the offense. The most likely place for these things to happen is inside of the same family. The most likely place for this to happen is inside of the same family. Why? Because that's where you're in closest proximity to other human beings. And other human beings are sinners. And where there are sinners, there will be sin. And where there is sin, there will be offenses. And where there are offenses, there will be and must be conflict resolution. And so most conflict will be between people that live in the same household dealing with 
Matthew 18, step one, privately. Beside that, hospitality. Hospitality. Beside that, times where you are simply meeting up with somebody else to do work. Okay, so, so get this. Where do you spend time the most besides your own home? Probably work. So where is the next most likely place for you to have a conflict? Probably work. If your work is in the home, then you get to double down on home. The home, work, hospitality. And work is not just the work you get paid for, but when you try to do anything. And whenever you try to accomplish anything, the stress increases. Like It can be a minor thing like, hey, we've got to set up this thing so we can all play the game when everybody gets here. Great, let's do it together. And we're both doing it, and we're both going to get frustrated with each other because we want to paint the lines differently, or we want to set up the board game differently, or we want the controls to be set up differently, and there should be more pizza here. Like, just that process of doing anything, no matter how minor, together, is where you have disagreements about the way you want stuff done and where offenses occur. So... Does this mean we should avoid hospitality, avoid working in our homes, avoid work, avoid fellowship and doing anything together so we can avoid all sin? No, that would be sin. That would be idleness. That would be a total waste of your life. You need to do these things and you need to get good at conflict resolution. You need to get good at conflict resolution so you can do things. Conflict resolution is necessary for unity and for accomplishing the goal of glorifying God together and methods of working together are determined by the law of God, and the methods of resolving conflict are determined by the law of God. So ordinarily, we should be dealing with each other one-on-one when there's an offense. There are exceptions, but we need to have this ingrained into our mind, and if we are looking for an exception, what we need to do is to go, can I do this one-on-one? Is there really a good reason to not do this one-on-one? And here's the reasons why. One, the more people involved in the conflict, the more time it costs. And time is a limited resource, at least before we die. If you haven't done it, hey, write this down. Write this down on your piece of paper. I really want you to write this down. You need to calculate the number of days you have left in your life if you live the average life expectancy. Okay? Calculate that out. Pretty simple. Average life expectancy, if you don't want to look it up because you're too lazy to Google it, it's probably like 83. Okay, so just run with that. You don't want to Google it, that's fine. Go with 83. Just pretend that the Lord will tarry and give you until you're 83. Subtract the number of years that you have currently lived, and that's the remainder, and then multiply that by 365.25. That is the number of days that you have to live on the earth if you're strong and the Lord tarries. Now, those days, if you actually want to accomplish anything significant, it is hard to find free time. You have to sleep. You have to work. You've got to eat and get ready in the morning and get ready for bed. You've got to do all that. How many free hours in a week do you think you actually have? How many free hours in a week do you think you have? If you haven't figured that out, I'd encourage you to figure that out too. 
and it will make you realize the value of free time. Free time, what's that? And so the idea of free time and how valuable free time is, resolving conflict, you go, you know, maybe I can overlook this, but not fake overlooking, that's peace faking. Right? If you can't forgive it, if you can't overlook it and not be bothered, and if it's actually just sinful neglect of a rebuke, you can't overlook it. We talked about that last time. But there's a value to time. And if you're going to pull somebody else in, it needs to be for a really good reason. And if you pull somebody else in, your goal is to get the lowest level in terms of like a position of authority person that you could pull in and think it's actually going to help. Now, if it's a complex situation or a substantial conflict, a lot of times you've got to pull in a particularly wise person and that's because it's going to be difficult and hairy and it's going to take a lot of time, which is why Moses, for example, was freed up from the lower courts so he could deal with the higher things. And let, here's the deal. The more complex stuff, do you think it takes more time or less time? It takes more time. It is more difficult. And so because it takes more time, there is less caseload that can be taken when you're dealing with more complex ones. And so what you need to do is to seek to deal with things at a lower level. So for example, in the household, one sibling gets in a fight with another sibling. Should they go immediately to the head of house next door? No, they, you want them to go to perhaps a person who's given authority in the house Maybe it's somebody other than one of the parents. Maybe it's mom. Maybe it's dad. You're not going to go to a person who's a higher rank outside of the jurisdiction first. You're going to go inside of the jurisdiction, and the parents are responsible to set an order of things. If you have a three-year-old and a five-year-old playing, and there's a 12-year-old present, and he's not able to resolve the thing, and he has to get mom involved, that's inefficient, right? Let's be real. Most of the time, the disputes that would occur between a three-year-old and a five-year-old should be able to be dealt with by a 12-year-old if they're in the same household. And so when you get to going beyond the household for a dispute inside of a household, that's a failure of the resolution and a failure of leadership. If you get inside of a church and you have to go beyond heads of household interacting or individuals interacting, you're getting other people involved, you're maybe getting wiser, mature Christians involved, maybe you're getting a deacon involved, maybe you're getting an elder involved. If you can't resolve it in the local church and you've got to deal with men who have been elected to represent the churches in regional councils, you are taking the time of a group of highly skilled, wise men and having them focus on that. So do you see the importance of allowing our resources to be free to deal with things and trying to solve things with the lowest amount of resources possible. This is redeeming the time. This is efficient use of things. This is using our resources well. This is dividing labor. So we want to have one-on-one resolution where possible. If we cannot have one-on-one resolution, we need to have a good reason for it. And so this is why the Lord has set this up. One, it is because of all the stuff we studied about the Ninth Commandment and about unnecessarily exposing people. And two, it is for efficiency. And three, as you work through conflict, you develop skill at working through conflict. You work through conflict and you go, I don't know. This is rough. 
how do we deal with this thing? And you go and you read the Bible and you study things and you grow in wisdom and you grow in application and discernment and you get better at applying the law of God and at resolving conflict. So step one is the individual or the parties involved in the dispute meeting with no witnesses. Witnesses would be people who are not involved in the, part, in the, in the dispute. So step one can include a witness when decency requires, for example, if I were going to talk to one of your wives or daughters, do you want me to take your wife or daughter and try to go have a private conversation with her about my dispute? If your answer is yes, you need to check yourself. <laughs> because it is obvious that it is unfitting and undecent for a man to take a woman and go meet with her in private away from her head of house. Decency requires that the head of house or at least some other witness be involved if the head of house is unavailable for some reason and it needs to proceed. So a second person is necessary for decency in a number of cases. When there's a need for order and there's some sort of swift action that needs to be taken to prevent worse disorder and I'm not talking about minor things. I'm talking about something's happening where you're worried about chaos or a safety problem type of thing being broken out. You might bring somebody else. And so you might go, well, that seems like an excuse that could allow for anything. Sure. And when I'm wrong or when you're wrong, you bring a second person and you know how that gets dealt with? At the end of the process, we examine that like we would any of the other fences in the process. And we just rebuke that after the fact. And there's repentance for it. Safety, you might make the wrong call, but if you are worried about your safety meeting with somebody else or there's some other safety concern and you need another person there, if you are weak and don't know how to deal with it or you lack the skill and I, the or there, not having anything after it was a mistake, it was because the or if the situation is particularly difficult, which is essentially the same thing as you having weakness, right? If it's difficult, it's because you were too weak to know how to deal with it well, right? Things that are that are hard for us or easy for people who are more skilled at a certain thing. So the idea that you might raise it to have another person and still be step one, that person could be a you know, private counselor or something like that. But the, the issue is there's not much difference between a modified step one and a step two. In the case where there's a person present for decency, it is different because you have witnesses that are chosen entirely by one party and it's for decency whereas if you know you're going to have a meeting you might seek to each bring a witness or something like that so you might go to step two after having that initial conversation and treat it like it was step one so that you could then have the step two with another witness so in step one charges should remain at the level of publicity of the offense or lower, unless difficult danger or the severity of the situation calls for escalation. So this is true for all of them. So, so if the offense occurs in public, right? So right now, you know, I just apologized for something earlier on. That apology was something I gave a public apology for. Why? Because I thought the offense was public enough that it needed to be cleared up publicly. So is that because I literally stood here in the pulpit before and said the thing that I repented of? No. 
but I did in front of other people and did in perhaps in a public meeting do something like that, even if not at this pulpit. This is more public, but it's public enough that it needs to be cleared up publicly. So I've repented publicly. Am I raising the level of publicity of the offense or am I raising the level of publicity of the resolution? No, because of the fact that there was already a widespread knowledge of the issue, not even necessarily of all the things involved, but of some of the things. And so this clears it up. And there's still some follow-up communication I'm going to do. There's some other people I've got to reach out to still that were not present here that I haven't talked to yet. I'm going to try to chase it down and then you also try to clear it up. So charges should remain at the level of publicity of the offense or lower unless difficulty, danger, or the severity of the situation calls for escalation. So offenses that the Bible defines as criminal may and sometimes must immediately proceed to public process in the church and sometimes also to the state. So for example, a property crime that is merely a property crime and there's not some sort of safety issue or violence done. If I steal your wallet, you should take it to the church court. If I rob you and threaten you with force, you should take it to the church court, but probably call the police first. The idea that if there is any sort of violence involved, the force or the threat of force raises it. And you can sometimes, when there's minor violence, choose to overlook it or not take it to a court and to try to deal with it more privately. But certain violent crimes, and I want to give you this, murder, obviously, but secondly, any sort of substantial wound, any permanent damage, anything that is a significant wound requires that you involve the civil magistrate Additionally, any sexual crime at all, any sexual crime requires that you involve some sort of public authority. And those are defined by the Bible. So offenses that the Bible defines as criminal may and sometimes must immediately proceed to public process in the church and sometimes also in the state. Sexual crimes and violent crimes should proceed to the state and church courts immediately unless the victim chooses to not exact criminal justice on a lesser violent crime. There are some lesser violent crimes that you can choose to take a penalty according to the scriptures that is something, you know, that you get to pick. So, for example, if I walk up and slap you, if I just backhand you, that's a violent crime. I've assaulted you, okay? And you could take that to the church court or you could just talk to me about it because it's not something, unless I struck you so hard I knocked a tooth out or I broke your nose or I caused some significant damage, right? I just, I just say it's an insult. I walk up to you and I slap you back of my hand in a way that doesn't cause any significant damage, okay? You could choose to rebuke me and to require repentance at some biblical level without necessarily taking that. But if it's something where it causes significant harm, there your freedom to do that is removed. And the more that it's a person who's under protection or authority, the more that gets escalated. 
Okay, so the, the higher your duty to protect and the less the person's able to defend themselves, the more you are required to deal with it with a public authority. So men abusing women, error towards involving public authority. Either abusing children, you err towards public authority. Spanking is not child abuse. It is required by the law of God. The rod is a symbol of discipline, and the rod is about causing physical pain. It is a symbol of corporal punishment. It is a symbol for discipline. It becomes child abuse when there is permanent damage or substantial damage to the body. It becomes criminal then. It may be sinful far earlier. If you're simply doing something that's lawful out of anger, that is sin. And we are told, for example, in the scriptures that even the magistrate may not issue more than 40 blows to a criminal for public punishment, for crimes. 40 is the maximum. So parents, you certainly do not have the capacity to do more than that for a single offense. The magistrate has more authority than you do in terms of the level of punishment he's allowed to issue. And if it applies to him, it applies to you. So charges should remain at the level of publicity of defense or lower unless difficulty, danger, or severity of the situation calls for escalation. So B, physical sexual acts toward another person or serious or non-repairable physical wounds or murder must proceed to public reporting of the crime at minimum and public trial if evidence be sufficient to allow for trial and if protection of the innocent allow the innocent to report the crime. You might be in a situation where you can't report a crime because it will cause you to be harmed. Okay, you have the right to make that decision. You can flee and not report. You can whatever. So imagine you're in a scenario where there's a mafioso who you witnessed him murder somebody and you know that he murders anybody who turns him in. Do you have to turn him in in that case? No, you might flee. Should you seek to report him and turn him in? Yes, it's a good work to be done, but you don't do stupid things that just get you killed. So if a place is overrun by crime, you can flee. In time of settled civil order, justice, and peace, we are obligated to protect the innocent. Those who profess innocence and behave peaceably through public process are also people we have a duty to protect while they go through process. And those who profess guilt and behave peaceably as they go through public process from the sword until guilt is determined through public process of judicial trial by the civil state. The same with for church discipline. So we, we go through public process, we protect people while process is happening, and they're peaceably following the rules for that process. Resolution needs to be as public as the offense or as public as the awareness of the conflict, whichever is higher. So if the offense was private, but then you go around and talk about it, the resolution needs to be public enough that you can resolve it with all the people who are aware. If the offense was public, then obviously the resolution needs to be public. So there's a raising of awareness of the conflict that occurs, however it occurs, whether it's orderly or disorderly, the resolution needs to deal with the level of publicity of the conflict. 
So here's how we, we here's something we need to be aware of to avoid the unnecessary raising of publicity. The idea of tailbearing or gossip. Tailbearing or gossip is a trap for disorder and for waste. Talking about a matter when A, it is not positively honoring to the party being discussed. Sorry, A1. A2 is not your business. And A3, you're not helping to solve the problem. That's gossip. If it's not your business, it's not honoring to the person that's being talked about, and you are not helping to solve the problem, it is certainly gossip. If you're going to talk to somebody to help, here are principles for you that I've listed down below about how to choose counselors. Now, another thing about gossip, uh, this was raised before, and I've said this before, I think Mr. Nye, you raised this last time. Um, when the matter is generally positive, but it's lawfully private and there's no good reason to discuss the matter, especially if there's been a request to keep it private, that can be gossip. And if it's generally positive and it would be lawful to talk about, but you've agreed to keep it confidential. Okay, so there's all the caveats. Caveat central here. Got all the caveats. Pile them up. So that's gossip. <laughs> Now, here's another thing that can create gossip. When you reveal that an act is bad versus revealing that an act has happened, okay? If everybody's aware of an act, you can judge, you can make statements about an act and determine if you think it is good or bad, right? So I get up here, give a sermon, not gossip if you say that was a bad sermon, not gossip if you say that was a good sermon. Okay? If I talk to you in private and you immediately leave and go say, that guy had stupid words coming out of his face. That's gossip. Raising awareness of the act, not making a judgment on the act, is gossip. However... If you're going to make a negative judgment about the act, you should probably tell the person that you're making the judgment about. doesn't mean you have to repent of telling it to somebody else, but if you're going to say it to somebody else, you might as well say it to them. Now, if you have no connection to the person, it's merely a public act. Like If I go to some conference, and I give a speech at a conference, and everybody there says, that was a bad speech, do they all need to tell me no, it is not a sin for them to all agree that my speech was garbage and then not tell me. Not sin. So do you see, it's not always gossip, not always sin to talk about things that you're aware of that other people are doing. It's the raising the awareness of the act when it was previously hidden. It is gossip. All right. Slander. Slander is spreading false, negative, or on page six, negative information when you know it's not true. When you go around and tell people false stuff, that's negative. That is a trap to create hatred and dishonor and encourages you to keep up a lie. Gossip is a trap for disorder and waste. It creates disorder because it makes it so that the publicity of a conflict potentially is raised. 
and it creates waste because all the time that has to be spent cleaning it up, and it itself is waste. It is useless talking. Now, when a matter is unclear or uncertain as to whether it's bad, but it's unclear, sorry, when, when, it, when it's clear that it's, that it's bad, forgive me. So there's two scenarios. One, scenario one, I don't know if it's bad. Two, yeah, it's bad, but I don't know how bad. We should inquire about the situation. Hey, what's going on here? Or is this a bad thing? Are you doing this bad thing? This looks like a bad thing. What's going on? These are the kinds of ways of straightforward Protestant candor, check it out, inquiring. So you can, you can take those four questions and pretend they're yours. Replace X with whatever you're concerned about. So if you reveal that an act that's already known about is a bad act, and it's not slander, if a matter is known to have occurred by two parties and it's not gossip to discuss the act for the sake of coming to agreement about how to judge it and how to proceed. Revealing that an act has happened to other people can be gossip and frequently is. If you do reveal something to somebody else, you have a duty to reveal the conclusion. Okay, so as the revealer, when you're going to think about telling somebody about something, here are questions you need to ask. Again, if you talk about this with somebody else, you are involving another person, you are raising its publicity, you're potentially harming somebody else's reputation, you're potentially wasting your own time and their time and increasing the time that has to be spent on the cleanup and on the conflict itself, and you're certainly raising the resources involved in it by involving another person. So you ask yourself, why do I want to involve this person? If the answer is because I want to talk about this, I want to vent, I want to whatever, stop. If it's I don't know what to do, I need counsel. If it's I need to restrain myself and get help controlling myself to do what's right. If it's this person is involved already and we need to go deal with this together. If it's I need help to solve the problem. Okay, those are lawful. Venting. Wanting to do it because it's interesting. Just sharing stuff with this person because you like to share lots of stuff with this person. Not helpful. None of those things are good. So do they have an interest in the matter in more than a general way where they may have a duty to act? If they do, then involving them might be necessary. Is there evidence that they would desire to help rather than just enjoy gossip? If you don't think that there's good evidence that they would desire to help, you should not involve them. Is there evidence that they have the ability to help? If they don't seem like they have any wisdom or competency to help, then involving them will just make it more complicated. You might ask yourself, is there a better person available to go? And that might be not just because they're better at the thing, but because this person, by using their time, it will be less costly and they would manage to do the job well. Okay, so, for example, Deacon Schaefer holds an honored office, but the office is lower than the office of elder. If your options are use my time or use Deacon Schaefer's time, and Deacon Schaefer, you think, is competent to deal with the matter, you should choose to involve him rather than me, 
because of the fact that I am called to additional tasks that he is not called to do. And so I am free to do those tasks, in particular, to prepare better to teach you the word and to pray. Those are particular tasks that I'm called to give particular attention to by my office in a way that the office of deacon is designed to free me of some work so that I can focus on that work. And so if it is possible for him to help you to deal with step one or step two, he is better to go to initially than me. If you think for some reason that it is complex enough that you need to involve me, then you should involve me. But you're asking yourself, is this the best person? It's the the lowest cost resource with a reasonable basis for belief that the resolution can be reached with this person's involvement. Six, is the benefit of involving this person worth the cost of their time and the relational harm of increasing the number of persons involved? If you know how to deal with things, you do not need counsel. If you do not know, then you need to seek to learn quickly. If you do know but are unskilled, then seek to practice and to develop the skill. Somebody could help you to walk through it, but you want to develop that skill to not need the help. If you are weak or the situation is difficult, then get help for this time and seek to grow in strength and to be able to deal with more difficult situations. If you're concerned about the safety or there's disorder because the person has shown a pattern of disorder or, or there's an unreasonableness and you're worried about somebody flipping out or there's a decency issue, okay, fine, get help. Make plain to the person why you've involved another party. Say, I did this because I'm worried about my safety. I did this because I was worried about your unreasonable behavior you've done in the past. I was worried about this because of the disorderly way that you've responded in the past or you've shown evidence this could happen. Or I always did this because of decency. Okay, great. Explain that. If you were wrong or you sinfully had evil suspicion involved the person, that can be dealt with afterwards, just as any other offense in the conflict. But simply, you just proceed with that person being a part of it. As the hearer is the person who is uh, listening to somebody who's coming to you to get advice. Okay? If you are helping to solve the problem, here are the things you're going to be doing. Okay? Somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about such and such. Okay, so here's what you're now looking for. What are you able to do? Can I counsel the speaker on how to proceed according to the law of God rather than according to man's opinions? If you have no idea what the law of God says, you might go, I don't know. Let's look at what the Bible says. Let's look for answers here. Or I don't have the answer for you. I think you need to take this to pastor or whatever. Right? So you're going, I, I don't know. You try to be honest. You maybe help. If you can try to look it up, right? You know, one of the best places to look for the stuff in the law of God is the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments. So if you're the hearer, you're trying to counsel about how to apply the law of God. Two, you go with them to meet the other party to bring about resolution of the conflict. That is often something that's necessary, especially if a person is actually gossiping with you. Right? You kind of just say, I'm going to hold your hand. And then you drag them to go talk to the person. Okay? And that person's presence who dragged them is not a violation of step one. That person is solving disorder of the raised publicity 
and making the resolution happen. That person could leave and be told about the result, or that person could stay. And that person, if they want to stay, since they've already been made aware, they probably should, because the reason they'd want to stay is to see that it's actually resolved. Because here's the thing. I don't know this has never happened to you, and I know you've never done this, but I, in my weakness, have had times where I was tempted to speak worse about a person in their absence than in their presence to their face. And when I talked about them when they were gone, I revealed my real thoughts. And when they were present, I cowardishly told them something less. So I'm sure that you are all braver than I and have never done that. Good for you. But if a person witnesses what was said in private and then wants to stick around to make sure that the things are said that were said to them in private, to the person involved, that is not an unnecessary raising of publicity. That is making sure the proper level of publicity has happened. Because you're telling the person to their face, and you've already heard it. The other reason you might have a reason to be involved is because you want to help to rescue the other party. You want to help to rescue the person that's talking to you from the other party or the other party itself. Somebody tells you about a problem, sometimes people will come to you and they'll say, you know, here's a thing and I can't believe the other person did this or whatever. And the way they explain the thing, you go, no, man, you're the one in the wrong. Like what you're saying here, like what, the way you are explaining it to me in private, you are the problem. And maybe you want to rescue the other person. Or... You, you hear news, you hear a report, and a person tells you something, you go, that's horrifying. This other person's abusing you wildly. Or this is danger, or whatever. So you want to rescue. Okay, so when you're hearing, you're trying to determine, do I need to rescue this person? Or do I need to rescue the other party? Four, it becomes your duty to either send the person immediately or to go with the person. It is no disorder for you to be present. It was a disorder for you to be told, and your presence is clearing that up. Or... It was right for you to be involved, and thus it's right for you to be present for the conflict itself being resolved. Does that make sense? Either it was a disorder for you to be brought in, and now you're ordering things by clearing it up, or it was right for you to be involved for counsel or rescue or whatever, and you're continuing to be involved. Now, the uh, end of page 7 talks about where to start the process and there are principles there for judging where to go. And I've got the exclusions, but here's the deal. Here's the rule. You always start at step one unless you have a justification from the law of God to go beyond it. And we will talk about those reasons why you would go to step two next time when we talk about step two, because I am past time. So comments, questions, and objections... From voting members and those speaking rights. Mr. Nye. Set a couple questions real quick. Thank you for your teaching, Pastor Reese. Uh, so 99 um, don't need repentance on uh, that parable. We should see those as righteous angels and not elect people who have already repented. So um, I think that the principle can be applied to the idea of the righteous angels. And I also think 
that it can be applied to the order of priority of tasks for a pastor or a brother who is concerned about a sheep that's going astray. So, you know, everything's in good order, and then somebody disappears. Somebody's not showing up to church anymore. Somebody's going off and flying to sin. Somebody's whatever. The going to rescue them is a higher priority than making sure the sheep have the proper length of wool for the, for the season. And that rescuing is then, when it's accomplished, something you rejoice over more than the good order. So it's certainly true of the, of the, the church, and it's a visible church, and it's true of the angels, but it's not true of that God doesn't... <laughs> there's not like more rejoicing for the most recent person brought back than all the other ones that were brought in before. So that's why it's not principally about the idea of the elect. Yeah, that's what I was trying to understand, right? So thank sure. you for explaining that. The second is, um, so if there's a conflict in, uh, in the family, um, so household worship would be a callback, like trying to resolve that conflict before you engage in household worship? Yes, and if there's a long conflict that needs to be worked through and the kids are waiting to go to bed, you at least acknowledge we need to deal with this. And so that idea that you don't make everybody stay up for three hours while mom and dad you know, argue in the other room, that's never happened. I've never done that. It's never been my fault. I'm sorry. So that, don't do that. Anybody who does that's a moron. Thank you. Great. Anything else? Mr. Marsh. Thanks for teaching. Um, I have a question about slander. It says, spreading false negative information when you know it is true. And sorry, when you know it's false. Did I say true? It is not true, sorry. Sorry, here. Um, so when you know it is not true. So it's often the case that people believe something to uh, about something else. Mm-hmm. And, and so they'll spread false information and um, it could be that they're just uh, they ought to know that it is true but they believe it's not true hold on I'm not thinking clearly about this now I gotta sit down well I think, I think, I think what you're saying is people can, said hate, people can spread hateful gossip that's false and they should know that it's false but they haven't done the research Right, and so does that is that slander basically is what you're asking? Yeah, that's actually what I'm gonna say. Yes. Okay. So basically, sure. Right, it's either slander or close to slander. Um, and malicious gossip is probably what I'd call that. And so malicious gossip should be repented of when it's known by clearing it up, right? When she realized that's that's false. And so um, it could be an evil suspicion, you know, whatever. So we should go through process. We should be quick to hear a defense. We should be slow to hear an evil report. We should be slow to spread an evil report. We shouldn't spread an evil report unless there's a duty to do so, right? all that sort of stuff. So sinless perfection, everybody. Do it. Be better. So, so go inquiring and, and do your due diligence before you blow things up. Yes, and, that, and we, I'm joking about the idea of sinless perfection, but I'll tell you what, that's also blamelessness. And we are all called to blamelessness, and we can do blamelessness. Blamelessness looks like 
going through proper order, proper process. Sinlessness would be having all of the proper motives and thoughts all the time. So you are able to blamelessly act where you can have external conformity to what the law requires. You are not able in this life to have sinless perfection. Okay? But we can meet blamelessness. And that's what mature Christians will have for some periods of time. And you're going to fail and sin in some external way. And then you're going to you know, be called back to it. That's not sinless perfection. But that's blamelessness. Okay, any other comments, questions, objections?